Amen. God bless you guys. Welcome again to Calvary Chapel. I know we asked once, but if you don't have a Bible, you're going to need one, so raise your hand. If you have your Bible, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 16. We're going to finish off the last few verses of chapter 16, and Lord willing, we'll look at chapter 17 tonight as well. A quick praise report. I had some of you pray for Calvary Chapel Antelope Valley on Sunday. I asked all of you on Sunday. And for those of you who might not know, that was where I spent, I don't know, close to a decade down there, a little less than that, I think. But we were there a long time, and, and uh, it was where God called me into ministry, and first had the opportunity to teach the youth and men's ministry, and just a place that's always been dear to my heart, real big church, God's blessing it. And then the pastor just kind of decided he had some new and different beliefs and kind of laid it on the church, and it split the church, and it was just breaking my heart. And praise God, people were praying, and then the pastor got up Sunday and resigned and left, and praise God, the church is going to go on, and now they're going to bring a, another Calvary Chapel pastor in, and we need to pray for the pastor as well. He loves the Lord, just difference of opinion, but sometimes it's amazing how we can take things and allow it to divide the body of Christ. It just broke my heart. So praise God, God answers prayer. These, these, they were going to be looking for a new building, and trying to, instead they're all staying, and they're just going to bring a new pastor, and so pray that God will bring them the right guy. There is a possibility I may go down there on a Sunday just to fill in while they're waiting for a pastor, but I'll, I'll, I'll be back, all right? You're stuck with me, okay? All right. Deuteronomy, chapter 16, the last portion of it. We're going to start in verse 18 and then through chapter 17. And just by way of quick review, Deuteronomy, the second giving of the law, this is Moses preparing the next generation to go into the land of promise. So he's preparing them. The previous generation had all died in the wilderness because of their disobedience to God. This next generation is still outside the land of promise. As they're about to go in, Moses is preparing them. Now remember, Moses is not going in with them because he smote the rock. So even though Moses had disobeyed God and Moses was going to miss out on God's highest, I love Moses' heart that he still ministered to the people and he still wanted God's highest for them. The first ten chapters, he was relating things that had already happened. Because a lot of them, though may have remembered it. They may have remembered passing through the Red Sea. Some of them had actually been born in the wilderness and wouldn't know it at all. But some of them were very small, and he's reminding them. And this is a great example for all of us, that we need to let the next generation know about the love of God. Amen? We need to tell them about what God's done in our lives. Remind them of the Lord. And so the first ten chapters were reminders of what had already happened. The next six chapters were things that were going to happen as they entered in. And it was preparation not to fall into the traps, because... They were going to go into this land of promise, but at the same time, there are still going to be traps waiting for them. You know, the land of Jordan, the Jordan River, and the land of Canaan is really a picture of the Spirit-filled life. We've talked about this before. Egypt, sin, bondage to the world, being delivered over the Red Sea, a picture of water baptism, traveling through the wilderness, headed to the land of promise, crossing over the Jordan, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, into the Spirit-filled life, all that God has for you. But even when you get there, things aren't going to be perfect. Amen? And coming on Sunday, we've been talking about trials. And remember, we talked about how sometimes you go through trials and our response, you know, someone tells you they're going through a trial, our response is, oh no, I'm so sorry. And we should have compassion, but trials is what makes us grow spiritually. So it's not, oh no, it's charge. Praise the Lord. Okay, God's going to grow me some more. He loves me enough to take me through this and, and to grow me. Well, he's preparing them to enter in because trials are going to be waiting on the other side. And as we've been seeing over the last several chapters, he prepared them. Now, last week... We talked about the three feasts that they were to celebrate. And each of those feasts was a remembrance of what God had already done and a preparation for what God was going to do. And the same is true for each of us, that we have things that God has placed in our lives so that we would never forget what He has done for us. We should never forget the cross, amen? We should never forget the resurrection. By the way, Easter's coming up. It's not bunnies and bonnets, amen? Easter is Resurrection Sunday, It's when Jesus rose from the dead, and it's an opportunity for us to remember all that God has done for us. So they were to go three times a year to Jerusalem, and when they got there, they were to spend an entire week remembering their deliverance out of bondage, remembering the fact that God, again, at Pentecost, the way that God, again, had delivered them out of the the wilderness, the Feast of Tabernacles, and all of those things, the Pentecost is a picture of the giving of the law, all of those things both had something that God had done and were a picture of what was to come. Passover is a picture of the cross to come, Egypt behind them. Pentecost, the giving of the law, and what would be later the giving of the Spirit. 
Feast of Tabernacles, a picture of the millennial reign when we will rule and reign with the Lord for a thousand years. So that brings us to chapter 16, the latter portion of it. And I titled the message tonight, The True Source of Wisdom. And what we're going to see in tonight's text is God's qualifications for judges and kings. I was, I was reading this today almost laughing, thinking, man, it would be great if we had these qualifications today. Can you imagine if every time we voted in a judge, we used these chapters? Boy, I would love it. It would be great. And I would love it if they were following what is in these chapters. Right now, I just heard on the radio, you know, they're debating over the Ten Commandments. You know about this? They're debating on whether or not they should have any government buildings and all these kinds of things. Well, if they were following these chapters, there would be, there would be no debate. Amen? And so as we go through this, we're going to see God's qualifications for kings and judges. And as we look at them, we're going to see that all in positions of authority, that God has got qualifications for them. And there will be many applications for you and I today. As these judges and kings and priests were to represent God to the people of Israel, so today every single one of us is to represent Christ to a lost and dying world. The, world, the word Christian means little Christ. And originally it was a derogatory term, picking on people who follow Jesus. Oh, you're just a little Christ. Each one of those little, you know, those rat, oh, I just want to be another Jesus, right? Well, amen. I will never be Jesus, by the way, and neither will you. Amen. Because we are sinners saved by grace. But we are his followers. And praise the Lord that we are to represent him. And so I can think of no greater compliment than that. So tonight we're going to look at, first, the requirements for just judges. Then we're going to see God's requirement for just judgment. And then lastly, God's requirement for godly kings. Of just judges, just or righteous judges, first of all, they had to be men of godly character. They had to be men who would not compromise the truth, and they had to be men who would not give God less than their best. Now imagine if we did that for the judicial courts today. Had to be men of character, had to be men who would not compromise truth, and had to be men who would give God the best. For just judgment, they were to diligently seek out the truth. It was only to be by the mouth of two or more witnesses, not two or more gossips, two or more witnesses, amen, And the greater judgment was to be brought to those who had a greater knowledge of the word. And then lastly, we'll see godly kings. We'll see that God was the ultimate king, but they cried out for another king. And we're going to see the qualifications for a king. That he was to be a brother in the Lord, not a foreigner. He was not to multiply horses for himself. He was not to take the people back to Egypt. He was not to multiply wives. He was not to multiply silver and gold. And we're to see where the source of wisdom for the king truly came. So the true source of wisdom, beginning in verse 18, God's requirements for just judges, just judgment, and godly kings. Let's look first at the requirements for just or righteous judges. It says in verse 18, You shall appoint judges and officers in all your gates, which the Lord your God gives you. Now, when they went into the land, they were going to split up into numerous cities. The tribes would be in different places, and each tribe would have its own city. And within that city, they had a gate. Now, it's not a gate like you and I think about in front of our house that swings back and forth. It was literally like a big room. And inside of that big room, they were able to monitor what came in and out of the city. And it was within that room that a lot of the commerce took place. A lot of buying and selling took place. And he says there that you shall appoint judges and officers in all of your gates. So as each of these tribes settled in, they had these judges they put there. Now, most likely, these were the chief elders of the tribe. Back in Exodus 18, for those of you who are here, when the judicial burden became too great for Moses to handle all by himself, the Lord told him to appoint leading men to rule over the tribes. Now, I'll read it to you, and you can look at it later. Exodus 18, 21 and 22 says this, Moreover, you shall select from all the people able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and place such over them to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Then it will be that every great matter they shall bring to you, but every small matter they themselves shall judge. So it will be easier for you that you may be able to bear the burden with you. He's talking to Moses. and He's telling the great matters would go to Moses, but the lesser matters would be handled locally. But you notice that these were men who were not covetous. These were not men striving for power. These were men who were elders in the faith. These were men who knew God in a, in a great way. These were men who had faith in the Lord, and they were placed in the place of judgment. Can you imagine what the United States would be like if that were the case today? What if everybody in charge of everything loved God? 
How different would things be? How incredible would it be? But God knew that as he sent them in with this ultimate plan, with his plan for the government, he knew the temptation would be there to do things another way. So he lays out this clear plan for them. And so these judges were to go in, and these judges were to be the ones that sat in that place with these officers in the gates. Now the officers stood before the judges, and these guys carried out the required punishment on the spot. These guys were like sergeants at arms. So they would sit there, and somebody would come in, and and they would make sure that everything that came into the city was watched, and everything that left was watched, and they had their eye on it. And at the same time, if somebody had a, a civil dispute with another brother in the Lord, they would run to the city gate, and they would go to the judge, and they would ask the judge, hey, here's what happened. We had a business deal, and he didn't fulfill his end, and this is what he promised to pay. And what do you, what do you say? And then he would give his command. And if it was a criminal offense, something outside of the will of God, then there could even be as much as capital punishment that would take place on the spot. And we're going to see that as we continue on going through this. These officers also went through the city and they made sure, kind of like a beat cop, they made sure that everybody's measures were accurate when they were buying and selling. And again, if there was any offender, they would bring them before the judge. And so inside this gate, they guarded against infiltration from outside enemies. They made sure that this was a safe haven. And you know what, guys? This is such a clear picture for us that our homes ought to be a safe haven from the world. Amen? That was weak. Amen? Okay. Our homes should be different than the world. They were to come into the gates, and once they got into the gate, it was not to be like the world outside. And they were to come into the gate and not to worry about the enemy being in there, not to worry about idol worship running wild, not to worry about adultery and all these things going on around them. And he said, you know what, this is not going to happen here. And so we're going to put guards in the gate. And today we need to be the guards of the gate of our homes and the guards of the gate of our own minds. Just as you and I today are to guard our homes, how do we guard them? Watch what we allow to come on TV, what music we have on our home, what comes through the internet, what ungodly influences we allow into our house. We need to keep the enemy out, especially if you have kids. Some of the stuff they bring home, some of the stuff they bring with them. You know what? It's okay to be the parent. Amen? Too often our parents say, well, my kids are 15, 16, they need to do what they want. Wait a minute. They're 15 and 16 and they have parents for a reason. Amen? When I was a youth pastor, I used to have parents tell me, well, I don't make my kids come to church because, well, they're 15 and they don't want to come. I said, let me ask you a question. Do you make them go to algebra? Well, yeah, I make them go to algebra. They've got to take algebra. Okay, why? Well, so you know, they can graduate and get a job. Okay, well, do you think having a relationship with God is a little more important than algebra? You think there's more of an eternal significance? It's okay to be the parents. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Amen? And so that means that if there's music, get rid of it. Be the spiritual leader. Don't walk around with an iron fist, but in love. Say, you know what, guys? This is going to harm you. You know, I'm not going to let my kids juggle knives, and I'm not going to let them listen to music that's going to harm them either. Or have access to garbage on the Internet, or all that kind of stuff. And again, we need to guard the gate of our home. Our home should be a safe haven, just as these cities were to be a safe haven. And when the people had these struggles or disputes, they brought them before them. Now let's read on. It says, according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with just or righteous judgment. You shall not pervert justice. Now the word there for pervert justice is a, a word that means to stretch, spread out, or bend. God had given them a clear standard, and they were not to alter the standard or its prescribed penalties under any circumstances. They're not out of preference or for personal gain. God said it, that settles it. They didn't try to figure out a way around the word. There it is. This is what it says. You break it, here's the consequence. Now in the world today, we don't have that. Nobody's guilty of anything. Have you figured that out? You go before, oh, I had too many Twinkies. That's my problem, right? My mom didn't breastfeed me long enough. I, you know, I... I was in the sun, you know, I went went out in the sun too long. I mean, everything's an excuse. I got this disorder and that disorder, and I'm anxious, and I'm worried, and I'm panicked, and I'm this, and I'm that, and I'm dyslexic, and I'm, right? Everything's a problem, and it's never my fault that I committed crimes. It's always the world's fault, it's not me. Well, God's word is very clear that God judges the hearts and intents, the intent and heart of every man, and he knows that we're sinners, amen? And the world needs to know we're sinners saved by grace, and it is our fault, it is my fault. You know, it's amazing. I wonder how I could get a police officer to come up here and tell us when he pulls somebody over, how many people go, yeah, I totally blew it. That was my fault. I ran the red light. You're right. I have an idea that's probably not 
happening a lot. What did I do? I don't know. What are you talking about, right? It's never our fault. But the Word of God, he says, don't pervert justice and don't change what the Word of God says and don't do it because of the outside influences that may come. God had given them a clear word, a clear standard. Look what he says. You shall not show partiality. The literal word for partiality is do not recognize faces. I think that's interesting. When the two people stand before you, don't treat anybody different because you know them or don't know them. Don't treat them different because they're rich or they're poor. Don't recognize faces. Don't have anything to do with it. We're to treat each person as if they had no prior knowledge of them. They were not to give discounts for, friend, for friends and family. They were not to, to do a favor for a friend over a stranger. They were to be faithful to the Word of God. Remember that the Word of God is given to us to grow us. So when I think I'm doing my family a favor by not applying the Word of God to their lives, I'm really doing them harm. I'm not doing many favors. I'm not doing my kids' favor by saying, oh, you don't need to go to church. The Bible says, forsake not the gathering yourselves together, but, you know, you're 15. Do whatever you want. I'm not doing them any favors. It's not helping them any in their walk with the Lord. We're to be faithful to the Word of God, not to the outside influences of the world. You know what? I've had friends come up and tell me, to my face, if you don't do what I want, I'm leaving the church. And the response was, I'm going to miss you. Because we're not going to do anything different than the Word of God. Amen? And if God says it, that settles it. And it's not a popularity contest. And it's not about how long you've known the pastor. And it's not about how close you are to some, somebody in a leadership or authority. That's not how it works. The Word of God is the standard. Amen? And I'm going to stand before Almighty God being accountable for that. And so, I don't play favorites. The Bible's it. And that's the answer. And that's the standard that we are going to use. It says there, don't show partiality, nor take a bribe. Don't be influenced by personal preference, nor personal gain. The word there for bribe is a donation, a gift, a present, or a reward. Isn't that interesting? It's not a bribe, it's a present. Right? You think anybody thinks they're taking a bribe? It's always a present, isn't it? Hey, if you see things my way, we might work it out so you can go to Hawaii for a week, right? You know, if you do things my way, it might work out. And so he's saying, don't take a present, don't take a gift, don't take a reward. And again, the pursuit of wealth and success, will what will it do? It will blind our eyes. Look what it says in the text. It will blind the eyes of the wise and twist the words of the righteous. We see this in the world today and in the church today as a pursuit of power, success, and wealth have impacted the clear message of God's Word. I know for a fact there are pastors that won't talk about things because some people will be offended and they won't be there to tithe anymore. So we got a big budget and we got to keep these people happy so we can't talk about that and they might not come back so we got to dial it, dial it down. And he's saying don't be, allow a bribe to change the words that should come out of your mouth. Don't allow a bribe to pervert justice. Don't allow a bribe to, to blind your eyes to truth. Don't start looking at different people in the church in a different way because of how much they give or how gifted they are. Teaching the truth of the gospel has been changed to ministering to the felt needs of man in order to draw a crowd. It's an epidemic today. You know what? We want to draw a crowd, so let's preach to felt needs. Let's don't tell people they're sinners. Let's tell them how wonderful they are. You know, the biggest church in America right now, the guy just flat out says, I will never tell anybody they're a sinner. I won't do it. You've seen him on TV. Joel Osteen, there it is, okay. Beating around the bush, there it is. Why bother? You know, you know, this is my Bible. There are many like it, but this one is mine. Now we're not going to read it anymore. Let's put it down, right? We need to teach the whole counsel of God, amen? And quit trying to, to be as popular as we can by not teaching. You know, do you think the Apostle Paul was popular? Do you think John the Baptist was popular? No. No, the truth in love, amen? We're not to draw a crowd, we're to make disciples, and you can't make disciples if all you feed people is cotton candy. They'll have rotten teeth. And they'll all die of malnutrition, amen? My heart is to feed you guys steak and potatoes every time you come to church. The whole counsel of God. But that also means that sometimes there's going to be, and every time, there should be conviction that comes with it, amen? And that conviction is what draws us closer to God and transforms our lives. And he says, don't allow the bribe to twist the words of righteousness, to blind your eyes. 
Finances should have absolutely no influence on the man who delivers the message or the message that is being taught. Amen? I will never ask you for your money. You have my ever. Not going to do it. Because where God guides, God provides. Amen? We don't pass an offering here because I don't want people ever to feel like they have to give. Oh, the plates come by. I better put something in. And I'm gonna... You know what? Don't give unless God... It's a cheerful gift. Amen? Hilarion is the word. With hilarity. You give because you love God. And you know what's incredible? We've never asked anybody for money. We don't ask anybody on the radio. People call us off our radio program and are blown away. I've been listening to you on the radio for a year. You'd never ask us for a dime. How do I give you guys money? Seriously. When they call and they order tapes, we send them out, and they're like, we didn't get a bill with the tapes because we don't charge for tapes. How can we charge for the gospel? That makes no sense to me. Send it for this message that could transform your life. It's nine bucks. I don't understand that. <laughs> Amen? Does that make any sense? It doesn't make any sense to me. And we shouldn't be blinded by finances. We shouldn't do things for a material gain because my father owns a cattle on a thousand hills. Amen? And he'll take care of us. And you know what's incredible? We've never asked for any, and God has taken care of us every step of the way. And right now we're in the process of, of praying about moving into a building. I mentioned this on Sunday because we're running out of parking. Good problems to have on Sundays. But we're not going to move till God says. But God will take care of it. And we're not going to have a building fund and a thermometer on the wall. We're not going to have pack a pew Tuesday. We're not going to have any fun. We're not doing that. Why? Because I'm not going to perch up. Let God do it. I'm not going to prop it up. Let the Lord do it. Amen? And he says, don't your, let your eye be blinded by the finances. Don't take a bribe so you change what you say. Just, just judges were to be men of character, obedient only to the word of God, not to the whims of men. I would never survive, ever, in a denominational church. You know why? Because if you say things they don't like, they fire you. You guys, you know what? If I blow it, Somebody will come fire me, but that's not how it works around. If you don't like it, we vote with your feet, amen? You just don't come back anymore. And Don't take me up on that. We love you. I'm glad you're here, all right? But I'm so glad that I'm not worried about what the, you know, the deacon board thinks about what I'm saying tonight, amen? Everybody's sitting around. Oh, you know, you, you spoke for 47 minutes. You're only supposed to speak for 45. And I've been to churches like that where people are so worried. Let's just teach the Bible, Amen? And let's not water it down and be worried about what somebody's you know, going to think if, if it's too direct or too straightforward to their hearts. Verse 20 says there, you shall, not follow, you shall follow what is altogether just that you may live and inherit the land which the Lord your God is giving you. You know what's great? When we're obedient to Almighty God, He blesses us. When we're obedient, God is glorified and we get blessed. He saves us. He died for us. He gives us His Holy Spirit. He gives us clear direction for our life. He convicts us when we sin. And then if we simply obey, He blesses us. What an awesome God we serve. Amen? And He says there in that verse, You shall follow what is altogether just, and you will live and you will inherit the land. Again, not partially right or have some good in it, but altogether just. The complete Word of God would result in Israel inheriting the land and experience experiencing all that God had for him. You know what, guys? Can I say this to you tonight? There's no shortcuts to God's highest in your life. There's no shortcuts. Too often we want to get around and get over and get to it, and, you know, and God teach me patience right now, that kind of thing, right? And we don't want to wait upon the Lord, and we don't want to really spend the time. We want the testimony without the tests, but there are no shortcuts to a strong spiritual walk with the Lord. And again, God's highest is that we would simply walk in obedience to Him. Remember that the highest form of worship is obedience. Verse 21. You shall not plant for yourself any tree as a wooden image near the altar which you build for yourself to the Lord. Now, what's he talking about here? Remember that he'd already talked to them about the groves that were in the land. And they would plant trees and bring shade and some shady stuff would go on in there. They would be covered up and it would hide them and they would feel better about going in and having sexual immorality and all the stuff that would go on. And he said, you're going to go into the land and there's going to be a temptation to put up an altar that the Canaanites are familiar with so they'll come and worship your God. Now what does that sound like? You know, put up the altar for the Lord and then maybe we can just put one of their altars up off to the side so they'll show up for that and then we can tell them about the real God. And how does the Lord feel about that? Does he want to share the altar with anybody? Does he want us reaching out to the world by giving them what they want? Oh, the Canaanites might come if we put up an altar and some false idols in a place. Then they'll feel really comfortable. 
Again, a picture of the seeker-sensitive movement. Let's bring people to church by making them feel comfortable. You know, let's give them something they're used to so they'll show up. You know, if we have Bozo the Clown and the Flying Walendas and throw up some stuff, right? Have a trapeze art. I mean, we can make it this circus. Circus church. There's a, you know what? Somebody's going to, don't put that on the radio. Somebody will do it. They will. They'll, put, they'll have circus church. I mean, they'll do everything they can to draw a crowd. And he says, don't you dare put anything next to the altar of God. Don't put anything near it, close to it. Don't let anything take your eyes off of the truth. Don't allow yourself to be in a place where you will be tempted to sin. These wooden images were sacred totems or idols common among the Canaanites. And they were not to compromise the truth or attempt to mix religions. Again, to attract them in. Don't compromise truth to make the unbeliever more comfortable. Should we love everybody who walks in the door? Absolutely. Should we love them unconditionally? Without question. Should they see the love of God in us? With no doubt about it. Should we love them enough to tell them the truth, even if it hurts? Yes. Amen? Because in the end, the result will be growth. Again, we don't love people by watering down or compromising the truth or placing God on equal footing with a false God. Now look what it says there in verse 22. You shall not set up a sacred pillar which the Lord your God is ambivalent about. Is that what it says? Which the Lord your God what? Hates. He says, don't you dare set up a sacred altar in the church to a false god. Don't you dare. God hates it. Now this kind of dispels the myth that there are many paths to God and God's okay with you going through Jesus or any other way you want to go. What does this verse say? All other paths, God what? He hates. The sacred pillars and the false gods of this world, God hates them. He hates it. Why? Because it leads to death of those that He created. It leads to separation from the, for those that He loves so very much. It breaks His heart. How would I feel about something that brought harm to those whom I love? I would hate it. Amen? That, that would steal glory from the Son, if you're God the Father. He hates it. The focus needs to be only on the Savior. Nothing was to be put on a pedestal. The word there for a, a sacred pillar is literally a pedestal. It was something that they set up, and then they would put images on top of it. And he said, don't put those pedestals in the church. You find that interesting? We shouldn't put anybody on a pedestal in the church. Amen? Including the pastor. Just ask my wife. I'll be off that pedestal real quick for you, okay? We don't put any man, don't put the worship leader, don't put the pastors, don't put anybody on a pedestal. We're, we're one beggar leading another beggar to the bread. We're all sinners saved by grace, every single one of us. Amen? And so he said, don't put pillars up in there. Don't put things where you prop things up. The focus should only be on the Lord. You know, back in Exodus, when he told them to build an altar, you guys remember this? He said, build an altar unto me, and he told them to build the altar out of what? Out of rocks. And he said, don't, don't even fashion them together. Don't make the altar look fancy in any way, shape, or form. Why? Because he wanted the focus to be on the sacrifice, not the altar. Just as today the focus should be on the Lord and not the building. That's good for us, amen? amen. But the focus should be on the Lord, not the building. You know, people, people say, yeah, I went to this church and they, they talked to me for 10 minutes about the stained glass and the ornate went, and it's okay to have stained glass, I'm not capping on that, but if all they talk about is the building, that's not a good church, amen? Because the church isn't the building. I want people walking out of here talking about the love of God, not the, not the sweet metal chairs they got to sit in, Amen? The focus is not on the altar. The focus is on the sacrifice. The focus was not, and he was not to share that glory with anybody or anything. And he shouldn't share it with anybody or anything in your life. This is also a message to those who would put up altars in churches today. You know, pray for those who have, you go into their church and they got statues of saints. What do you think God feels about that? How does God feel about going into a church and there's a statue of saints? If anybody could be grieved in heaven, it would be Mary. Mary's like, don't do that. Amen? But what are you doing? Don't be kissing my feet. Don't be praying to me. I'm a sinner saved by grace just like you. Amen? And so we don't put up altars. We don't put up things equal with Christ in any way, shape, or form. It's the Lord and Him alone just should be glorified. And at the same time, we shouldn't have statues of Jesus either. You know why? You wonder why? Why don't we have statues of Jesus at church? What's that? He's in heaven. What else? 
Why don't we have statues of Jesus at church? It's Jesus, right? He's God. Why don't we have statues of him? You know why? Because it limits Jesus. You know what? Jesus can't be defined in a statue. Amen? He, you know, you want to read about Jesus, how he is today? Read Revelation chapter 1 when you get home. And when he comes back, he's coming back in great glory and great power. Amen? And that's why we don't have Jesus hanging on the cross anymore, because he's not there. Amen? He's a risen and a living Savior. And the God that we serve is not the Jesus that was hanging on the cross. He's risen and living. And when he comes back, everybody's going to know it. Amen? And he comes back with great power and great might. He's awesome, holy God. And you can't limit him in a picture or a statue. It doesn't, it can, there's no way that it can depict the mightiness and awesomeness of Almighty God. All-knowing, almighty, all-powerful, coming back in great glory. Look at verse 17. You shall not sacrifice to the Lord your God a bull or a sheep which has any blemish or defect, for this is an abomination to the Lord. So they went out to sacrifice, and we've talked about this repeatedly as we went through Exodus and Leviticus, but they were only to give a perfect animal. Now there's a couple things we need to see from this. We are only to give God the best, not the rest. Amen? We had a love nook over in San Jose when I was a youth pastor over there, and sometimes I'd go over there and help out. And you'd be amazed what people give to the church. You would be amazed. In our youth room, we had four of the rattiest sofas you ever saw. Now, we could take that to the dump or give it to the church. And sometimes that's how people are with their stuff. Hey, I got a brand, you know, that thing's falling apart. It's a piece of junk. Let's get a new one and then give the old one to the church. Or better yet, let's help out those missionaries and give them our Torah bed that's falling apart and held together by barbed wire. You know what I mean? And that's, and that's what happens a lot in the church. We've missed it. We don't give God the rest. We give God the best. Amen? I think sometimes we ought to keep the old bed and give the new one to the missionaries. Amen? Give the new one to those who are serving the Lord. Give the new one to those who are hurting. And the Lord is saying, you don't give me the worst of your animals. You give me the best. Now, why could it not have a blemish? Because it's a picture of, of Jesus. When Jesus came and John the Baptist saw him in the beginning of his ministry, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is perfect, holy God, and the Lamb had to be perfect because the Lamb or the bull, all the sacrifices were a picture of the Lord, and they could not be blemished in any way. We're to give God of our first fruits, not of the leftovers. And it says it's an abomination to the Lord your God. It's interesting later that there's something called the abomination of desolation in Daniel where the Antichrist will be, in, will be in a temple and they'll finally realize that he's not God. And he'll be sacrificing an unclean animal there. And when he does that, he'll proclaim himself to be God and people will realize they've been duped. Guess what? Real clear picture right here. He says it's an abomination in the eyes of God that you would give a defective animal. Why? Because they didn't fully grasp the fact that it was pointing to Christ. They didn't understand that completely. But you and I do. And again, these were clear pictures of the Lord. Give God our best. Sin was paid for with an incredible price, and we're not to sacrifice that which costs us nothing. Remember what David said in 2 Samuel. Remember that? He wanted a, there was a threshing floor that he wanted to, to use for the building of the temple, and, and he went to the owner of it, and the owner said, if you're going to use it for God, I'll give it to you. And David said, no way. I cannot give that to God which costs me nothing. I need to give to God the best that I have, not the rest of what I have. Not the last of what I have. God needs to come first in my life. So it says there, no blemish, for it is an abomination to the Lord your God. So in the true source of wisdom, God's requirement of just judges, men of godly character, men who would not compromise the truth, bring in false idols and put them right up next to the Lord. Have things that are on equal plane with God. Men of godly character who wouldn't be bought off, who wouldn't buy, go with a bribe, who wouldn't show partiality towards different people. And then lastly, they were to give God the best. Now God's requirement for just judgments. Verse 2. If there's found among you within any of your gates, which the Lord your God gives you, a man or a woman who has been wicked in the sight of the Lord your God, in transgressing his covenant, who has gone and served other gods, and worshipped them, either the sun or the moon, or any of the host of heaven, which I have not commanded. So first of all, he says that if there's any among you within your gate. So any believers, any within the body among you that do this, then judgment will come. He says, within the land which the Lord your God gave you. Now this is the other thing that I think is important for all of us. 
We so often think that our stuff belongs to us, and that's why we hold on to it so tight. How many of us say, my house? I do, don't you? My car, my house, my stuff. My, 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 right? And so it's my stuff. So nobody tells me how to do, what to do with my stuff. And the Lord's reminding them, you know that land you're going to be living in? Who gave it to you? That'd be me. And since I gave it to you, I'm the one who makes the rules. Now remember again that these rules are to help you keep your eyes on me. And it says there, has been wicked in the sight of the Lord, who has gone and served other gods and worshipped them. Now serving other gods, again, not an alternative path, but in God's eyes, it was wickedness. And it was evil in the sight of the Lord. Because look what he says there in that verse. Who has been evil in the sight of the Lord. So if somebody goes and worships another god, it is evil in the sight of the Lord. And it says, transgressing his covenant. The word there for covenant is where we get the marriage contract. It's where we, we have a, the marriage between a husband and a wife. And he says there, those who go serve other gods have broken the marriage contract. And you know what it is? It's spiritual adultery. Because the Bible says that we are the bride of Christ. Amen? And we are married to Him. And so when we go serve false gods, what have we done? We've broken the marriage bond between us and God. Idol worship and any false god that we would serve is spiritual adultery. And again, it's a word that people don't like to hear today. Don't people think Christians are narrow? I told you about flying back from India. It's a long flight, by the way. 17 hours, the last leg, and I'm sitting next to a Hindu guy who's telling me about his 30 million gods and how wonderful it is to be a Hindu. And at one point he looked at me, because we were talking back and forth, and 12 hours into the conversation, you know, we've talked about just about everything at this point. He says to me, so you're trying to tell me your God's better than my God. Is that what you're trying to tell me? I said, look, what I think is irrelevant, but let me just say this. There is only one God. And Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. So there is only one God, and all other gods are false gods. Well, that's what you're saying then. You're saying your God's better than mine. What I'm telling you is Jesus is the only God. So any other God you would serve is a false God. You're telling me your God's better than mine. Okay, yeah, all right, that's what I'm telling you. Yes. Yes, he is. Oh, man, Christians are so arrogant. You go, you know, we have 30 million gods. You only have one Jesus. Amen. Aren't you glad we don't have 30 million gods? How confusing would that be? You'd be going into name class. That's all you do, studying the names of God, right? Uh-uh, right? 30 million of them. You'd never get it all down. It would never happen. You'd have 50 phone books full of names just of the gods that you have to figure out their name. But praise God that the truth is that Jesus alone is the way. And it is narrow. But pray, aren't you glad it's narrow? You've heard me use the analogy before. If the building's on fire and I tell you there's the way out, is it the stupidest thing you ever heard to say? Well, I'm thinking, that just seems narrow to me. I want some options. The, how, the building's on fire, get out the door. Well, I'm, I'm thinking that's kind of narrow. I like, you know, is there a way I can tunnel under the ground? Is there some other way that I can get there? You guys are all so, you firefighters are all the same, pointing us toward the exit door, you know what I mean? You know, you Christians are all the same, pointing us to Jesus Christ. He alone is the way. He alone is the truth. He alone is the life. And look what it says here. Served other gods and worshipped them, either the sun or the moon or any of the host of heaven which I have not commanded. Guess what? You may look at that and say, well, we don't worship the sun or the moon God. But guess, you know what's, what is so prevalent today? Astrology. Do you know astrology is from the pit of hell? Is that pretty straight? I think that was pretty clear. Pastor Dave, what do you really think about astrology? Here's the thing. Astrology is equal with paganism and witchcraft. It's all, created, it's all wrapped up in the worship of creation. Paganism, what do they do? They worship Mother Earth and you know, trees and the sun and the moon and the stars. And, and you know what, guys? You know, we're to take care of the planet, but I don't worship the planet. Amen? I don't wor- Mother Earth, if I, every time I see one of those stickers, it makes me sick. Amen? And Santa Cruz, we got a few. <laughs> Worship your mother. That's what it says. And so he says here very clearly, look, those who worship the moon and the stars, which I have not commanded. What is astrology? It's the foolish belief that how the stars and planets were aligned on the day you were born has something to do with the circumstances of daily life. Over 70% of Americans read their horoscope at least once a week. You know, the, moon, the Venus is over here, so that means you're going to get a new job today. Is that, how does that work? You ever thought about that? 
Today you're going to get a new job and, and your love life's going to be wonderful because the star moved. It's like feng shui. I told you I saw the book Feng Shui for Dummies. I thought, how redundant is that, right? <laughs> feng Shui for Dummies. Move your Kleenex box and you'll have great peace. You know, if the star just moves a little bit, and can you believe people are going to follow that rather than just trust God? Rather than just believe in Almighty God. And you know what? They'll believe in the horse. Oh, I can't go outside today. Why? My horoscope says so. How about trusting in the creator of the universe? Amen? And Christians, don't even read your horoscope. Can I encourage you with that? Don't even read it for fun. It's a tool of the enemy. It's something that the devil will use to try to get into your heart. Nebuchadnezzar consulted astrologers. But guess what? Found that Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael were ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers combined. And astrology, again, is not harmless fun, but it's pagan idolatry, and no Christian should have anything to do with it. Man, I'm being a little direct tonight, I think. Huh? Verse 4. And it's told you, and you hear it of it, then you shall inquire diligently. And if it is indeed true and certain that such an abomination has been committed in Israel, then you shall bring out your should bring out to your gates the man or woman who has committed such a wicked thing and shall stone them to death, stone to death that man or woman with stones. And it cracks me up with stones. You stone them to death. I'm thinking stones is probably the only way you could do it. But look what it says there. If somebody's worshiping the moon, what do they do to them? They stoned them. If somebody worshiped the sun, they stoned them. If somebody worshiped a false god, they stoned them. Now I know that seems really harsh, but remember the context. He's bringing them into a new land. He's bringing them into a land that was filled with pagan idolatry. And now they are filled with the spirit of the living God in that context. And they're going in. And now they're enjoying the promises of God. And God says, I don't want the enemy to get in there. And so when somebody comes to start worshiping a, a false god, if I let it go, guess what's going to happen? Other people are going to start worshiping false gods. Other people are going to be influenced. And so if somebody does it, you're to bring them out, and the sentence is to be carried out. Now, I want you to see this, though, that the sentence was not to be carried out on just the word of one person. God had, a tolerance for, it had no tolerance for those that would lead His children away to false gods. And they were to be stoned in public to be an example to everybody. Do you know back in those days what they would do? When somebody committed adultery, they would put them in a planter box. And then stone them to death, and then they would fall forward, and they would plant a tree there. And every time somebody walked by, they go, oh, adultery's bad. It's not a good idea. Can you imagine if they did that today? There'd be trees everywhere. We wouldn't have to worry about the rainforest or anything, right? But it says here, he's very clear that he's saying, again, don't fall into this trap. Because, again, there's just judgment that will come. And God has no tolerance for those who serve false gods. If you, what if you serve a false god with real sincerity and you're a really nice person? Haven't you heard that before? But he's really a nice guy. He's a sinner saved by grace just like me. Amen? And we all need the Lord. And I can't get, if I could get there by being good, there wouldn't be no need for the cross. Verse 4. Whoever is deserving of death shall be put to death. On the testimony of two or three witnesses, he shall not be put to death on the testimony of one witness. Now here's why. Because if you didn't like somebody, you could just go lie. And they said, we need two or three witnesses. They didn't want to just... Put someone to death on the word of one person. The, the thing that you and I should think about when it comes to this is when you hear something slanderous about somebody and you hear it only from one person, don't believe it. Amen? Two or three witnesses. And it doesn't mean, and two or three witnesses, not two or three gossips. Because somebody told somebody and then they both come tell you doesn't mean that it's true. Amen? Just because 10 people have heard it and 20 people have repeated it doesn't make it true. It's two or three witnesses. And today, while we may not be murdering people, we will assassinate their character by passing on something that isn't true about them and repeating it over and over. May it not be so in the kingdom of God. May we think the best of people and not the worst. Then look what it says in verse 7. The hands of the witness shall be the first against him to put him to death. And afterwards, the hands of all the people shall, shall put away the evil from among you. Now, this is interesting. The person who witnessed it had to throw the first rock. Now, what would that do? That would make people think twice before they lied about somebody, right? Because not only did they have to say, I saw him, but then they had to be willing to have that person stood up and pick up a stone and throw it at him. 
Now, doesn't this bring even greater light to the story in John 8 of the woman caught in adultery? Remember what Jesus said? All these people came accusing her. He said, let he who is without sin, what? Cast the first stone. So the person who witnessed this adultery, and it's amazing how you could witness adultery and not have the guy there. How does that work? You know they were trying to trap the Lord. They didn't even have the guy there. And so it it brings greater light to the fact that if we're going to accuse somebody, we better be ready to stand up publicly and let everybody know the accusation that we've made and be willing to literally be the one that, you know, in this case, was casting the first stone. They better know for sure what they're accusing that purpose, that person of. And then it says, afterwards, all the people were to join in. Why? Because sin impacted the whole community, and the whole community had to deal with sin. And then it says there, put away the evil from among you, both the evil man and the evil committed by him. It kept the evil from spreading. Bible says, bad company corrupts good morals. You cannot hang out with the world and not become like it. You cannot hold fire to your bosom and not be burned. You cannot walk through a mud patch in, a, in all white clothing and not get muddy. And if you hang out like, with the world, you're going to become like the world. And he said, remove it. And public judgment detoured others from following in his footsteps. So those who think that, that uh, capital punishment doesn't keep people from, from the crime, you're wrong. Because God says so right here. Amen? Because it does detour people. If someone is killed for a crime, it detours it from happening again. Now look what happens with greater judgment, verse 8. If the matter rises which is too hard for you to judge, between degrees of guilt or bloodshed, between one judgment or another, between one punishment or another, matters of controversy within your gates, then you shall arise and go up to the place which the Lord your God chooses. So the difficult cases where maybe the debate came, they brought the person to the gate, and the chief elder's sitting there and he's going, boy, you both make really good points. I'm not really sure what to do here. Or this person did this, but they did it on accident. I don't know how, I don't know what to do. Well, let's take them up to Jerusalem and bring them before the high priest and bring them before the ultimate judge and let him judge them. Who's the high priest the picture of? Jesus Christ. And we will all face the ultimate judgment before him one day. Amen? And so they were to bring him to the place God chooses. This is in Jerusalem. This is where the cross would later be, where the Lord was later crucified. And so, whenever they didn't know exactly what to do, they brought them to the temple. And you shall come to the priests and Levites, and to, and to judge them there in those days, and inquire of them, they shall pronounce upon you the sentence of judgment. So they brought them to the priests and Levites. Now, why did he bring them to the priests and Levites when they didn't understand? If I don't understand, how are they going to understand any better? Because the priests and Levites were those who spent the most time in the Word. You want to have wisdom, the true source of wisdom, it's God's Word. You understand how to live your life and have direction for life, read the Bible. Read the book, don't wait for the movie, right? Spend time in God's Word, because God's Word will transform your life. And the more they understood the Word of God, the more they were able to minister to another. The best place for arbitration between brothers is in church, in prayer before the Lord. If you're struggling with another Christian, don't take them to court. Bring, them, bring it before the Lord, amen? Because we blow our testimony when we take each other to court. If we're both walking with God. Let's come before the pastors. Let's come before, if he goes to another church, go before their pastor and just say, hey, here's what's going on. What does the word of God say? The final court of arbitration, verse 10 and 11. You should do according to the sentence which they pronounce upon you in that place which the Lord chooses. And you should be careful to do according to all that they order according to the sentence of the law in which they instruct you, according to the judgment which they tell you, you shall do. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left from the sentence which they pronounce upon you. When you go into counseling, biblical counseling, be willing to accept what the Bible says. Do you know one of the things I do, especially if it's somebody I don't know very well in counseling, one of the first things I will do is I will ask them, do you believe that the Bible is the living, breathing Word of God and that it contains all that we need to live lives as God desires. And then I ask them, do you believe that God's word is the, is the ultimate authority? If they say no, we're done. I got nothing. Amen? Because all I'm going to do is take you to the Bible. And I'll tell you, it is frustrating sometimes. You take people to the word and they see what the Bible says. And then they'll look at you and say, yeah, I know what it says. I'm just not going to do it. I, I'm just not going to do it. Yeah, the Bible says it. Okay, fine, fine, fine. I'm not doing it. 
The Bible says you need to stay with your spouse. I don't care. I'm not doing it. You don't understand. What does the Bible say? It's not what I understand. It's not what I think. What does the Bible say? Yeah, but, you know, I need to do this, and, I, you know, I'm working under the table. I'm getting paid on the side. The Bible says, given to Caesar what is Caesar's. Yeah, but you don't understand my bills. What does the Bible say? Amen? When we receive biblical counsel, we need to be able to respond and say, yes, Lord, to the Word of God. And too often what we want to say is, yeah, but. Yeah, but, Lord, wait a minute. But I have unique circumstances. Mine's just a little bit different. You obviously didn't know what I was going through when you wrote the Bible. Right? We think somehow God just missed us. No. And he says here to them, what do they need to do? You shall do according to that which they pronounce upon you. You shall be careful to do according to all they say. And don't turn to the right and don't turn to the left. Do exactly what you hear when you're counseled from the Word of God. The Bible says it. Do it. You know what? Do you think if you obey the Word of God, you're going to be bummed out later that you did? If you just walk in obedience to the Lord and say, yes, Lord, I'm going to do what you say because you love me and you know what is best for me. Well, guess what happens if they didn't do it? Look at verse 12. How does God feel about people obeying his word? Now, the man who acts presumptuously and will not heed the priest who stands to minister there before the Lord your God or the judge, that man shall go on a European vacation. What does it say? The man shall die. A lot of people read the Old Testament and they go, I don't like the God of the Old Testament. You ever heard that before? I don't like that guy. He's killing people. Right? He wiped out the Amalekites. He's wiping out the Amorites. All the Enies and the Ites are getting wiped out all the time. Right? Why does God do that? You know why God does that? To protect those who are walking with Him from being corrupted by those who never would have. I truly believe, first of all, in the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. But I also believe that whether you live to be 500 or you live to be 30, you're going to accept or reject Christ. You know, people say his life was cut short. He didn't have a chance to know God. I believe this. He had just the same amount of chance to know God. I absolutely believe that. I don't believe that God is... People are dying a week before they were going to get saved. I just don't believe that. And I, and I believe here that very clearly he's saying, those who hear the word of God and just reject it, they shall die. So you shall put away the evil from Israel. So that's the, really the key why the person died. Why did they die? To keep Israel from falling into sin. Here's another thing that happens a lot. You've got an unsaved roommate. Do you think that's biblical? Oh, getting in, Pastor Dave's getting in some kitchens tonight. Here's the thing. No! What does the Bible say? Do not be what? Unequally owed together with unbelievers. Well, I'm not married to them. No, but you're living in the same house. Does bad company corrupt good morals? Yes, it does. So if you're living with unbelievers, what are you doing? He says here, the person shall die. Why? So that Israel will not be corrupt. And if you're living with the world, how much different would it be to come home to a believing roommate who would pray with you at the end of a tough day? Who would encourage you from the Word of God? If Christian music was being cranked in the house, how different would that be? We need to honor the Word of God because God knows what is best for us. Verse 13. And all the people shall hear and fear and no longer act presumptuously. Can you imagine if you're the next guy in line? The guy before you goes up and he says, you know what, here's what I think needs to happen. You need to pay him seven bulls. The guy says, oh man, no, I ain't doing that. I'm not going for that. And then they take him out and stone him to death. And you're next. And the guy says, I need you to give, oh yeah, no problem. Whatever you say. Works for me. I'm thinking, you think seven's enough? How about ten, right? What does it do? It brings fear into the hearts of those who disobey, who, you know, who might disobey the word of God. The fear of God is the beginning of what? Wisdom. And it's good that we understand that when we walk in disobedience and rebellion against God, that sin has consequences. Again, not because He's a no-fun, bummer God with a lightning bolt waiting for you to make a mistake, but because He loves you and wants to draw you back into right fellowship with Him. Again, those who would be in contempt toward the Word of God would face righteous judgment. Lastly, godly kings. Look at verse 14. When you come into the land which the Lord your God is giving you and possess it and dwell in it and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. When does this happen? Who remembers? Which book of the Bible? Bible quiz tonight. Somebody's got to know. First Samuel. Amen. There you go. Praise the Lord. It doesn't happen for 400 years, but remember what happened? The children of Israel, who was their king at that time? God. Can you get a better king than God? I'm thinking God for president. How about you? Amen? 
Can you get a better president than God? I'm voting for God. Let's, keep, let's just re-elect him forever. And so what happens is God had been their king, but then they started having all these enemies around them that were mounting up huge armies, and they had a bunch of yoked, you know, big guys. That were, that were, uh, that's their king. He's a big yoke guy. Who's our king? It's God. Where is he? He's it's up in heaven somewhere. Well, we need a big guy. We need a guy with some armor and like a big spear in his hand that we can look at and go, there's our king. And God, they say, and he says to them, when you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around me, proving again that God knows everything, because 400 years later, that's exactly what happened. They cried out for a king. We'll talk about that in a minute. You shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses, one from among your brethren. You shall set his king over you. You shall not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother. So the first thing he says is, you shall set a king over you that the Lord chooses. Now Israel did clamor for a king. They did it out of fear, out of a lack of faith. They wanted somebody that they could look at. They're going to choose Saul over God, just like later they would choose Barabbas over Jesus. Now, what did, what did God tell them about Saul before they made him king? Listen to this. Imagine if you ran on this platform. I'm running for president. I'm running for president. Let me tell you what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to take all your kids from you, and they're going to drive my chariots, plow my fields, and make my weapons. That's what your sons are going to do. Your daughters are going to be my perfumers, cooks, and bakers. Then I'm going to take the best of your fields, the best of your vineyards, and your olive groves, and I'm going to give them to my servants. Then I'm going to take one-tenth of your grain, all your male servants and your female servants. I'm going to take your finest young men. I'm going to take all your donkeys, one-tenth of your sheep. And oh, by the way, you're all going to serve me. Vote for me for president. God told them, and you can look it up, God told them in 1 Samuel chapter 8, that's exactly what Saul would do. And how did they respond? He said, in the very end of all of this, you're going to cry out and say, we don't want a king anymore, and the Lord will not hear you in that day. In 1 Samuel 18, Samuel 8, verse 19, Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel and said, No, but we will have a king to rule over us. So God warns them and says, All these things will happen if you have a king. They say, Give us one anyway. Now, what does that sound like? I know what it sounds like in my life. It's not unlike us as we choose to sin. We, we have full knowledge that sin has consequences, and we choose to do it anyway. How many of you can relate to that? You know before you do it, Right? You know that if I do this, it's going to have consequences, and then we do it anyway. And he writes out all the consequences for them, and they go, yeah, give us a king anyway. And it wasn't long before they were crying out, going, deliver us from this guy. And God didn't hear them, because they were walking in disobedience to him. Now, what are the qualifications for a king? First of all, it said there that he had to be a brother and not a foreigner. Verse 16, he shall not multiply horses for himself. Now, why is that a big deal? Because he was not to put all of his trust in military power and become self-reliant. What would a godly king, who would a godly king be reliant upon? Upon God. How many times in the Bible does God make the army of Israel really, really small before he lets them fight? You ever seen that? Remember Gideon's mighty army? They're all numbered like 10 to 1, and he says, you got too many guys. So go over here, and the guys that don't drink the water, and he got them all the way down to 300. Now he says, now you'll know that I won the war. Go fight them. And of course they won, and who got glorified? God did. And often he would bring their army down really small so they would have to trust God. And the same is true for us. If we have a lot of stuff, and we have a lot of things that we can trust in, and we become self-reliant, then God never gets the glory, and we never have to trust in him, and we never have to cry out to him. And he says, the king should never mount up many horses, or he'll become self-reliant. He says there, nor shall he cause his people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. So he's not to go back to his old way of life. He's not to take them back to the place that they once came from. Forget that they've been delivered from that place of bondage. For the Lord has said to you, you shall not return that way again. Neither shall he multiply wives. It wasn't to multiply wives. Why? He was not to have so much worldly comfort, so much physical pleasure and personal status that again, he was not trusting in the Lord. Because it says there, if he multiplies wives, what will happen? His heart will turn away. Nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. So he wasn't to multiply the physical worldly riches. Why? Because again, if he did, he would become reliant upon himself. Now, lest his heart turn away. Each issue has a, is a matter of balance. Should he have military power of any kind? Yes. But he shouldn't have so much to become self-reliant. Should he have a wife and some comfort? Yes. 
but he shouldn't have so much that he became worldly focused. Should he have some wealth? Yes, but not so much that his treasure would be in the things of this world instead of focused on God. Now, which king totally blew this whole thing? Solomon. How many horses? He had 40,000 horses and chariots. He imported horses from Egypt. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines. He had a thousand wives. That's a wife for every day of the year for three years. I have an idea that he went, I'll take that one. Oh, you already married to her. Can you imagine? He's the king. He would just pick out all the pretty ones. Give me her and give me her. Oh, you married her a year ago. She's wife number 175. Oh, all right. Never mind, right? He had so many wives. Now, I don't mean to be too graphic, but do you think he had a thousand wives so he could have a thousand women to talk to? What do you think? I don't think so. Right? Can you imagine? No, that's not why. But again, what was he pursuing? Physical pleasure, worldly things. Sorry to keep up with one, 7,000 wives. He surpassed all the kings on the earth in wealth. He was the wealthiest man. And what happened to him in the end? He turned his heart away from God. Because he had so much stuff and so much wealth and so many wives. And he was so powerful that he didn't need God anymore. And we all can fall into that same trap. These three areas. What are the three areas we can fall into? The area of power, pleasure, and money. God's command for his leaders have not changed. Nor do they, and we need to be on guard that we don't deceive ourselves like Solomon. They think that we're some, under some kind of special thing. Now lastly, last few verses, bear, witness with, bear, bear with me here. And here's what it says. And this is where we get the true wisdom. Where does true wisdom come from? Also it shall be. So he shouldn't multiply wives, he shouldn't multiply stuff, he shouldn't multiply horses, but what should he do? Those are the qualifications. What is the wisdom for the king? Look what it says. It shall be when he sits on the throne of the kingdom that he shall write for himself a copy of the law in a book from the one before the priest and the Levites. So can you imagine the king? Here's your first job as king. I want you to make yourself a copy of this. Sit down and write one out. Now, in their case, it was Matthew. What, which books was it? It was the Pentateuch, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And he said, I want you to sit. Now, remember, they had to write on a big scroll. So he would sit down and take parchment out. and a pe- So what did he spend a lot of his time doing? Writing out the Bible. And he says, this is the qualification for a good king. He spends time in the Word. He's making a copy of the Word. He's not a guy multiplying wives and multiplying stuff and multiplying money. He's a guy who's in the Word. He's a guy that's spending time seeking God's face. And then look at what it says there. And it shall, be, it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God and be careful to observe all the words of the law and these statutes. So not only was he to write it out, but what else was he supposed to do? He was supposed to be in it every day. How often should we be in the Bible, in the Word? Every day. We're so blessed. You guys got, some of you have 12 Bibles at home. Is that true or not? Amen? I want to get a green one. I want, I want an NIV, an NASB. I want the new open Bible, the old open Bible. I want the study Bible, the Nelson study. Right? And that's great. Have a bunch, but you know what? If we're going to have them, let's use them. Amen? And they had to write it out. How many Bibles would you have if you had a copy yourself? Maybe one, right? Man, that'd be a job. I'm taking a year off. What are you doing? I'm making my own Bible. It's my Bible year. I'm writing one out. I mean, that's what they did, right? Can you imagine, buddy? What did he do? After writing it all out, he spent every single day in the Word. And what does it do? That he might fear the Lord and obey all the words of the law. The Word of God is living and breathing, and it can keep a person from sin. Many people have written in the inside cover of their Bible, this book can keep you from sin, and sin can keep you from this book. Amen? The more time you spend in the Word of God, the less you're going to sin. I absolutely believe that's true. Why? Because the more time I spend in the Word, the more God ministers to my heart, the more I desire to walk with Him, the more I see the, the benefits and the blessings of being in the center of His will. Last verse. That His heart may not be lifted above His brethren, that He may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or to the left, that He may prolong His days in His kingdom, He and His children in the midst of Israel. That His heart may not be lifted up. By staying in the Word, it kept Him humble. By staying in the Word, he didn't think about how many horses he had. He didn't think about how much money he had. He didn't think about how many wives he had or how powerful he was. All he thought about was how desperately he needed God and how small he was in comparison to God. 
And you know what? When we stay in the Word, it keeps us desperate for the Lord. It takes our eyes off our circumstances and puts them on God. It takes our eyes off our bank account and puts it on God. It takes our eyes off our abilities and puts them on God. And we begin to fear the Lord, and we don't elevate ourselves above others. And it keeps us humble. That's why we need to stay in the Word of God every day. We need to know the Word. We need to diligently read it. We need to study it. And again, for a king, this was a qualification for a godly king. Wouldn't you love that to be the qualification for every elected office in the United States? You've got to make a copy of your own Bible, and then you need to read it every day. Amen? Wouldn't that be great? Instead, they're trying to kick the Ten Commandments out. They can't even keep a little piece of the Bible. Back then, they had to keep it all. So what's the source of true wisdom? It's not power. It's not pleasure. It's not money. But it's the Word of God dwelling deeply within the heart of man. Does the Word of God dwell deeply within your heart? It can. Just spend more time in it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You, Lord, for the, the clear message, Lord, of the heart of true wisdom. And, and Lord, just how it grieves Your heart when there are things that would draw us away from You. Take our eyes off of You. Lord, we're not to multiply for ourselves so much stuff in this earth that we don't feel like we need You. Lord, may we not be so busy pursuing the things of this earth that we don't have time to be in Your Word. We don't take time to be in Your Word. Lord, I pray that we would be like that King who loves Your Word, who reads it every single day, who fears You, who's fully reliant upon You. And Lord, those who aren't walking with You, may we not be self-righteous and judgmental of them, but Lord, may we love them. May we share the love of God with them. May we reach out to them. But Lord, may at the same time while we minister to the world, may we have no fellowship with it, because Lord, we know it will cause us to compromise in our walk with You. Lord, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Let's stand and close the worship song.